Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. I am Dan Lust, joined this week by Karen Sharma and Jason Morin. A just an absolutely wild week in sports law. So much so, we might even have three episodes this week, but we figured this episode would be our catch-up episode. We obviously discussed the St. Louis Rams on Monday with Howard Balzer. A big shout, I guess, to everyone that's downloaded that episode. As I mentioned on social media, it's our most downloaded episode of all time, and it's been out for like two days. So, you know, this that St. Louis story has a lot of levels to it. There is a, an update on the St. Louis Rams front. We, we have a special guest for Thursday. We'll see if the episode comes out Thursday or Friday. But we're going to dedicate a special episode to the St. Louis Rams, again, with the story that's being reported by Front Office Sports. So stay tuned for that. For this episode, we're going to do a catch-all. We're going to try to cover everything that happened in the week that was a really busy week. A story and a trend that we keep touching on is really this kind of accountability era in sports. So, you know, we'll, we'll get into it. But Taryn and Jason, I, w- I needed to bring in some heavy lifters here because we have stories touching on all sports. So Taryn, you're kind of my basketball guy. Jason, you're kind of my hockey guy. And then I know, Taryn, you have some ties to, uh, to Washington. We've got a lot of ground to cover. So I guess we'll hit the team stuff first, and then, you know, we'll get to Aaron Rodgers. We'll get to the NCAA Constitution, another big story. But let's start with the teams. So I guess the, the floor is open before we get into any particular topics. Taryn, Jason, what are your thoughts on uh, this last couple of weeks on sports, you know, with, with respect to teams being brought into this stuff? It's clearly just an insane time right now. And it feels like everything was sort of kicked off with the Washington football team scandal. And then everything else in terms of teams is cascaded down from that. I really enjoyed the fireside chat episode. I think that we've been talking about doing more long form episodes for quite some time and to get a guest like Howard Balzer and to cover it so thoroughly is really just a credit to to the entire team. And that was a great episode. And I'm glad that people are really enjoying it and learning so much about the the St. Louis history with football. We love our St. Louis listeners. Well said, Tyron. And, you know, one thing I saw someone said about Howard Balzer is that he's just seemingly a walking encyclopedia. I mean, (laughs) I'm trying to get to that level where you you can just speak for hours on end with such precision and uh, a knowledge of history like he did. Really impressive episode. And I personally enjoyed it. To Dan's point, with the recent news cycle, it almost seems like, you know, these stories are just writing themselves by the hour. And we're just trying to document everything that's going on here. And, you know, stories are coming out as we speak now. So, you know, we're going to try to hit every story possible. And th- there's almost so many that the search for content is, is not that far reaching. And uh, another point I wanted to make is that I really appreciate, Dan, how you call it the accountability era. In regards to the um, allegations or or proven investigations into uh, misconduct of misogyny and and racism inside organizations, and the word that you use, accountability, is correct here because, you know, some people try to paint this as some kind of cancel culture movement stemming into sports, but that's really not accurate. You know, if someone is just a genuinely bad person and they're treating employees with disrespect or, you know, crossing the line completely into a world where people don't feel comfortable in their workplace, then they absolutely should be held accountable. And that's, that's what's happening here. We're going to talk about it more with, you know, something going on with the Suns, with the Blazers and a couple other teams. But, you know, accountability is the correct word here. So definitely agree with you there. We can start here. You know, one of our, our more popular episodes, just coincidentally, we've been a little bit on a roll. We can't take credit for it as a show. Just there's so many topics you know, in sports law. You know, I, we were talking offline. We could probably do like seven episodes this week, right? There's just so, I, I don't know what's, what's necessarily happening. I mean, it's not really just this accountability era. It's all across sports. So we're, we're really going to 
try to nar- narrow this portion of our conversation to just the teams. But obviously, we, there's a lot of topics that we're not going to be able to get to. We had an episode a week ago at this point with two former employees of the Washington football team. And we had them tell their stories and we had them, you know, whatever they were comfortable saying. And I think these former female employees with the organization just want a voice. They want to be heard. They feel like in in the sports context that, you know, these allegations or claims like this aren't brought to light because people are are fearful of their potential career in sports if they speak out. So I I heard those type of sentiments and inappropriate comments at work. We have known for some time about this uh, Phoenix Suns looming story about Robert Sarver. And then if you read the reporting on Sarver, you're hearing a lot of the same notes that it's a privilege to work in sports and you don't want to disrupt your, your place in the organization. And then after Washington football team and Sarver, you guys know, I put out a tweet that I said, you know, it seems like something is brewing here. Lawyers get ready. It's not a coincidence that these two things are happening at the same time. And then we have four other stories that have some, some of the same similar tones. Portland Trailblazers, Anaheim Ducks in hockey. Of course, the Chicago Blackhawks, which we've covered in the past. We have an update on that front. And the Pittsburgh Penguins in hockey. So we'll cover those all in turn. But let's start, Taryn, with an update on Washington football team. What's the latest that you're hearing with respect to that investigation? And I think the the movement kind of kicked off this whole accountability era. John Kine has been on top of this. Uh, He's got an article from ESPN this past week, just a few days ago. Essentially what has happened is the House Oversight and Reform Committee, as we've covered before, has issued this letter on October 21st to the commissioner. And it's asking questions. It's asking about the league's role in Beth Wilkinson's investigation, asking why after 150 people were interviewed that there was no written report what the role of the general counsel, Jeff Pash, who is seen to be kind of buddy-buddy with Bruce Allen in these emails, what was his role. And the ranking members on that committee, Carol Maloney, who's the chairwoman, and Raja Krishnamurthy, congressman from Illinois, they are requesting these documents in a five-page letter that was posing these questions. The NFL really didn't provide any documentation at this time. There was a November 4th kind of deadline that the committee had set that they were asking for responses to these questions and for them to provide the documentation. And what the people on this committee have said is that they're wondering whether we need stronger laws in terms of allowing the employees at these organizations to be more protected. So they're really kind of framing this in the spirit of transparency. The NFL has responded to some of those questions. We don't know what those answers were, but so far as we know, they haven't provided the documentation. There's still no written report to our knowledge of the investigation of the Washington football team. That's really the latest, you know, we've said on this podcast, I don't really think it's such a bold prediction, but if Washington football and the NFL don't comply with this investigation, Congress doesn't have to let them off the hook. You could have a, a full hearing and just put Roger Goodell on the hot seat, Dan Snyder on the hot seat. And I mentioned that on the, on the podcast that we had with Stephanie, you know, a week or so ago. Fans don't really have a right and, and even, you know, former employees of an organization to force someone to sell a team. It's a private entity. The NBA or the NFL or Major League Baseball all have mechanisms in place to try and force the sale of a team. Now, the only time that, that we see these conversations even happen is when there's a public outcry, be it on social media or otherwise, for someone to go. But those mechanisms have never been used. Something has usually happened. You Jerry Richardson kind of agreeing uh, voluntarily to sell the team. You can go down, march out with the Cincinnati Reds. I mean, Donald Sterling, again, Dan and I, spent, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about it, but 
even Donald Sterling wasn't forced by the league to sell the team. It happened through another different uh, mechanism through probate court. But you don't get to that point in the narrative. You, you don't have the NBA even debating that unless you have a lot of court behind a particular clause. So Washington football team, the, the heat is, is certainly uh, way up. That seat is, is pretty hot. Dan Snyder might not want to do anything, but at a certain point, you know, the more the pressure is on the NFL in a, in a bad sense, the, the more these other owners and these other NFL organizations might apply pressure to Goodell to say, hey, something's got to be done here. This is just a really bad look all around. So, Taryn, I think the big part of that story, right, the emails. Everyone wants the emails, and the NFL is not giving them up. So I think until the emails come out, until there maybe is a written report that's commissioned after the fact, I don't think people are, are going to calm down. But one thing that I heard from a friend of mine who, who would be in the know, Beth Wilkinson, by all indications, if you want to take my word for it, I heard it indirectly, conducted a thorough investigation, but it's not necessarily on her. It wasn't necessarily her decision not to have a, a written report issued. That, that's usually going to be on the client, right? The client wants to pay for you to write a report. It just makes sense that they will do that, at least from, from what I'm hearing, that that was not the, the case here, that the reason there was no written report is because the client didn't necessarily want it. So I don't know. What do you guys think on Washington? What do you, what do you think this goes? I'm just wondering whether anyone is going to stop, especially the former employees, while I guess John Gruden is really the only person that's been punished for this, and he wasn't even in the organization. It was just that his emails got leaked and they got leaked at very specific times and they were very convenient times given what was going on around in the league. But I give a lot of credit to those former employees that showed up and spoke to us on the podcast and the others that haven't necessarily made their names public. It's really unimaginably difficult what they're probably going through right now and having to relitigate this time after time. And they clearly weren't treated properly. And it's good on them to demand, again, we come back to that word, accountability. And I would like to see it because a $10 million fine and a restructuring where Dan Snyder's wife is now a co-CEO just doesn't cut it to me. Jason? Yeah, and let's not forget, you know, kind of where this started with the $1.6 million settlement with the former employee. And, you know, that's what this is really about. It's turned into a lot of, you know, the power struggle between NFL favoritism of owners in terms of the way that they're handled versus a head coach like John Gruden. But, you know, we're really talking about this because there was a massive sexual harassment scandal and, you know, accountability error. Back to that. People need to be held, held accountable. And that starts with Daniel Snyder. So whatever mechanisms Roger Goodell and co could use here or Congress, as we've discussed, you know, something tangible needs to be done. And the $1.6 million settlement is not really palatable for me as an endpoint. So we'll see where this goes, but you know, we need more accountability here and the Washington football team needs a certain change in leadership and how they run their operation over there. We've obviously been in the weeds in this Washington story for a while. And I appreciate it. You know, I've spoke with both of you offline after uh, we had our, our podcast, you know, last week. So in the, in the aftermath of our podcast with Megan and Anna from Washington football team, I, I heard so much feedback from a lot of people. And uh, obviously, there are people that listen to this know, you know, there's obviously male sports fans and there's female sports fans, right? So I, I think a lot of the feedback I heard was from our female listenership that really appreciate that we took the time to cover the story and give it its uh, appropriate attention. Part of Megan and Anna's story, it's not necessarily right solely sexual discrimination, sexual harassment, but the kind of comments are we couldn't even talk to HR, right? So no matter what it was, it could be an issue that was on a scale of one to 10 in terms of inappropriateness. It could be a 10, it could be a five, it could be a two, but we had no HR department to, to talk to, right? You, you heard Anna and Megan, there was an HR department of one. So that, that's certainly not conducive to an issue being cleaned up. 
So I, I had all that in my head when I read the Robert Sarver story. Uh, ESPN Baxter Holmes uh, came out with a full story detailing 70 plus interviews with people in and around Phoenix Suns organization. Robert Sarver has been the owner since the mid 2000s. So stories kind of similar to, to what we heard from Megan and Anna. Stories that begin at the beginning of his ownership reign and, and then all the way kind of up to the present. So it's not maybe an isolated period. It's seemingly uh, rampant throughout his time owning the Phoenix Suns. So I'll give a brief history and then uh, I'll kind of give it to you guys. Essentially, the comments from Robert Sarver range from comments of a, a racial nature. They, they're comments that are maybe gender based in, in, uh, in terms of discrimination. There's a comment about, you know, a woman who was pregnant being able to, to do her job. Comments of, uh, you know, a sexual nature towards, you know, I think female and males. There's a story about Blake Griffin's brother that was included in the story. You can read the story. I highly recommend it. It's not, not really on us to talk about kind of gross nature of that particular story. But again, similar to, uh, you know, John Gruden emails, Robert Sarver's allegations touch upon any and all classes that they talk about. Anyone that you could potentially offend, Robert Sarver touched upon. It's not just a racial or racial type comments. The thing that makes this a little bit different than Donald Sterling in the NBA context, we've got to talk about Donald Sterling because that's the last time this kind of came up in sports. His comments were generally, I don't want to say entirely, but generally tied to racial comments. And most importantly, it was not a he said, he said, right? Or he said, she said. There was something that was caught on tape and you couldn't really miss that part. This isn't, this still is a he said, she said deal. You can have 70 interviews, you can have 100 interviews, but until you know for sure that something happened that is completely inexcusable, uh, it kind of puts Adam Silver in a tough spot. So yeah, Robert Sarver issued a, an emphatic denial. The, the update on that story, which we saw last night, Maybe a kind of word of advice to spouses of people under fire. Penny Sarver, Robert Sarver's wife, is she owned up to it. She said that she took it upon herself to reach out via text and Instagram DM to some people affiliated with the story. An affiliated story, I guess, I guess former employees, we're not sure what to make of it. But she's saying, you know, you've, you're ruining my family. Uh, you know, imagine if the tables are turned, think about what you do. And these employees are viewing this as being a threat. So it's certainly making, a, adding another level to the story. But you don't normally have wives going after people on Instagram DM. So that's the gist of the Sarver story. I'll open up to you guys. What are your thoughts on what's going on in Phoenix? I thought it was totally out of place for Penny Sarver to get herself involved like that. You know, she could say this is not a threat all you want, but someone's words are not really determinative in the court of law, but rather their actions. So I thought I thought the text, the text that she sent to the Instagram DMs, whatever you may have it, were certainly of a threatening nature. I mean... You have someone from a position of power basically trying to coerce the lower power structured employee to stop what they were doing and take back their words for no reason other than, you know, pure co coercion. So she can call it what she wants, but I am not really trusting her word on that one. But, you know, as for the story in general, I thought it was really, really interesting that a lot of this comes from former player and, you know, former head coach of the Suns, Earl Watson, who talked about a lot of things that Sarver would do. And if true, these are just totally unacceptable. I mean, he forced him to tank and, he, you know, he, he spoke about how Sarver would threaten him with lineup changes and benching Bledsoe late in games, one of their best players at the time. And he, uh, Sarver forced Watson to fire his agent, Rich Paul, you know, for no reason other than he didn't like the kind of allure and culture that uh, Paul came with. And he would use just vulgar language and totally unacceptable language in regards to his players and around the locker room and with employees. And, you know, it, it's all just disgusting and you hope it's not true, but with the level of detail here, there's no reason to, to make this stuff up. So, you know, Robert Sarver seems like someone who is just so 
kind of glued to the position that he's in. He's been the owner for, I believe it said 17 years, that these people just think they're untouchable and they could treat someone in a lower position of power, however they see fit, and there could be no repercussions. But now in the accountability era, as you have it, you know, it's coming out that, that these actions can't fly. It's not at all acceptable and you will face discipline and accountability for, for acting this way. It's just totally unacceptable. Well, we'll see if there's any sort of discipline or accountability coming from the NBA. They've launched an investigation into the Suns. And the thing is that I think that Watson, given his position as being a respected former player and coach, putting his name to these allegations of Sarver's use of racial epithets. I think that really uh, strengthens the, uh, the the allegations against Sarver right now. Like I mentioned last time we discussed this, Dan, the Sarver and his team have gone out on like a full-scale offensive. They had the GM, the president, come out and say, you know, Robert Sarver's not that type of guy. He's hard driving, he's demanding but he's not a racist. He's somebody that I like. I will say that the consistent thing that I'm seeing through that is that, you know, they term it hard driving and very demanding. And the people who have ended up on his bad side, they term it as he really wanted people to grovel. He wanted them to beg. He really wanted to diminish their position within the organization because he could. So whether that leads to any sort of being forced out, that remains to be seen because do the other owners want to be in a position where these types of allegations, not the racial epithets because that's at a different level, but the sort of running of the organization, there's all sorts of different organizational leadership styles. Do they want that to be a determinative factor in losing their franchises? And I'm not sure that the NBA owners are interested in allowing that type of action to occur. So we'll see what happens. I I think that Sarver will probably survive this. I think that there will be some sort of organizational restructuring and that he might have to apologize. But the Penny Sarver thing is beyond bizarre. And Dan, you put up the poll yesterday. What did people think that it was more likely that the allegations were true or less likely or no change? I think that the leading vote getter was more likely, right? More likely. Yeah. I did it on a separate poll on Instagram and and Twitter, but people said, you know, around 60, 70% that this, this gave more credibility to the claims. You know, my, my personal vote was that it doesn't change anything, but certainly you have to fight the court of public opinion as much as you have to fight anything. So in these situations, I don't know, that's why uh, Robert Sauber has hired very expensive lawyers, I'm sure, with this case, or has hired big lawyers with respect to the, the Phoenix Suns organization. Let your lawyer do the talking. So this is not a podcast that's out here defending Robert Sauber, but word of advice, if you are ever affiliated with any type of big case, right? Like, don't say anything. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law, be it the court of law or the court of public opinion. And the optics are, are just not, really bad for Penny Sarver. You shouldn't be reaching out to anyone. I'm, I'm not sure how she figured out who was associated with the story, if they were the same people that were actually interviewed, but not a good look by any means. And just one other thing, the NBA and all professional sports really are an entertainment business. So perception matters. The court of public opinion matters to some extent. And when you're the steward of a franchise for a place, it's on you to represent it with the utmost care and discipline. And clearly that didn't happen here. And whether that rises to the level of being forced out is a different question. So I think it'll be interesting what the NBA comes up with. Adam Silver has really shown himself to be kind of a no-nonsense commissioner. Do we think that he has enough 
sort of political capital to just say, here's a fine, here's a reorganization plan, and we'll go from there. You won't lose your franchise. I'm interested to see what will happen. Put this in the back of your heads for now. I listen to a lot of smart people in MBA circles. I listen to a podcast with Bill Simmons and Jackie McMullen. You know, those guys have been around the block. Certainly, Jackie has covered the MBA for, for decades. She doesn't think that this is going to, that this, I think, objectively rises to the level of Donald Sterling from an evidentiary perspective, because he's not caught on video saying these certain things. You know, but I, I don't think the sentiment in MBA circles is that this rises to the level that will make Adam Sterling make the same pronouncements, right? That, you know, he's banned for life and this is unacceptable. You know, we'll, we'll see what comes of it. Well, what, what I wanted to point out, why the Sarver story and the Washington story, why there is crossover and why it ties into the rest of the allegations. In addition to the gross parts of the stories, right, the tens, again, if you just read the, the Sarver story, there's a woefully inadequate HR department. You know, I, uh, the advice that HR, at least according to the story, was giving to like aggrieved employees on their way out, they would say, hey, if you threaten to sue us, we'll give you some type of settlement on your way out. Just, just you know, I know that you're not saying you're going to sue us, but if you threaten to sue us, that would be great because then we'll pay you something. So HR, again, I'm just going off of, off of you know, Baxter home story, essentially was giving the playbook and how to get a little bit of a cash payout for a group of employees. And there was also a comment that, you know, if, uh, if you had a problem, HR would take you for a walk outside. They didn't, it, would, it was a bad optic to be seen complaining to HR in the HR office. So just not a good look. What's the point of having HR if you can't go to them freely? I don't know. So again, why I bring this up and why I mentioned that like Megan and Anna just didn't feel their voice was being heard. Same deal at Phoenix. You know, Robert Sarver, I guess, created a culture where you could not make any type of complaints. So, you know, that that takes us to a larger picture of events that, that touches upon the NBA, a little bit on NHL. So we have four other stories we wanted to cover. You know, certainly the allegations from Washington football team and Sarver involve other employees that are not just the owners. Stories that we should touch about first, at least with respect to, I guess we can jump back and forth. But the one I had in mind is occurring over in Portland. An owner, I guess, kind of launched an investigation into the general manager. So that's now coming from the top down. And if you're thinking from an administrative procedure, all of these cases are against, you know, the owner, right? We just talked about Washington. We talked about Phoenix. Those are allegations involving the owner. But here, if you're trying to figure out the playbook, at least with respect to the Portland situation, it seems like the owner preempted this and said, let's investigate the general manager, right? I want to preempt this and cut this off so people don't come coming, you know, coming for me at the top. So something we're seeing a little bit new. Jason, uh, I'll, I'll turn it to you. I know we don't have much, but, but what do we have uh, on the... Uh, at least what's being public reported on the Portland Trailblazers front. Yeah, so this is in regards to their general manager, Neil Olshay. The Portland Trailblazers and their owner, Jody Allen, announced that they launched an investigation into Olshay, you know, basically concerning the workplace environment and the conditions of employment. And this is really started by non-player personnel. So it's not really player related as far as we know now. But the investigation has been has been launched into their general manager. The team refused to comment at this time and like you said, we don't really have the level of detail as we do into the Sarver story or the Washington football team story. But, you know, this is certainly something we will watch and update you as the story develops. You know, it's just another example of a person of power just thinking they can get away with whatever they want, potentially, and creating this environment centered on fear and power. You know, this is a, uh, on the lighter side, a, a quote I, I found that you want to put someone in the dirt, here's a way to bury him. So Chris Haynes tweeted that former Blazers player and coach Dan DeCow had him on the podcast and he uh, detailed being cursed out, humiliated and gaslighted. But possibly the worst allegation is that DeCow also reveals 
that former GM Chad Buchanan is the one who zeroed in on Damian Lillard pre-draft. So not only is Olshay being thrown into the ring here for a potential bad workplace environment and tension and uh, bad treatment of, of employees, but he did not scout Damian Lillard. He was not the one to do it. So I don't want to take light away from the, the main story here, but I want to kick a man when he's down. He was not the, the scout on their superstar. I think it's important, right? Maybe uh, you have some revisionist history popping in. I, I don't know. I mean, listen, Jason, but you, you hit on you hit on the main thing, right? Like this is, a, at least as it's being reported, alleged workplace misconduct. That could be a lot of things. We're talking about kind of sports law, bingo, and sexual harassment, racial comments, gender-based comments, you know, you name it. We don't know exactly what it is, but we know it's enough. You know, the story as it's reported by Shams Tanya over at The Athletic is that the Blazers and their owner, Jody Allen, have gotten ahead of it. So, you know, uh, if, if it's a general manager, that's pretty easy, right? You just fire the guy. We have general managers fired and hired all the time. It's a much less bigger story than the owner potentially being forced to sell their team. So as we're seeing on the fly, we got to just read it. We got to analyze it. We got to react. That might be the playbook for these owners, right? Make someone the fall guy. And maybe, maybe that was Dan Snyder's uh, intention when he tried to make, you know, well, I'm not going to say it, but I, I think the Bruce Allen emails being out there in Washington football team, I think are highly suspect, but maybe, maybe that was the attempt by Snyder. But uh, as Snyder tends to do, Snyder fails at a lot of things. Uh, maybe, maybe that was the time. Jason, you, you brought this one to my attention with the, the sports law stories swirling about. I missed this one. And Taryn, I know you're, you're probably more of a hockey fan than I am, but similar story. We have one from the NHL that, that's occurring with the Blazers. Staying on the West Coast here, we're going over to Anaheim, a little south of Portland. And yesterday, the Anaheim Ducks tweeted, we have placed executive vice president and general manager Bob Murray on administrative leave pending an ongoing investigation. This is not the first instance that we have seen Bob Murray's name being thrown into kind of a cloud of, of a misogynist and, um, you know, just an awful human being, basically, perception here. In 2009, Bob Murray was cleared of, of assault charges in a chair-throwing lawsuit. No damages were awarded. You know, it was an undisputed fact that he threw a chair at a woman. So this is not the first time that we've seen Bob Murray's name in this light. And, you know, it, it makes me think, is, is this investigation now ongoing because, you know, something concrete happened recently? Or is it just the accountability era where the Ducks are getting, uh, I don't want to say ahead of this because it could be late. And they're saying, oh, wait, you know what, this might be next. Why don't we conduct an investigation, you know, before someone speaks out and the media forces us to do it? You know, chicken and egg kind of story here. But one thing that we know is that Bob Murray has not had a great public perception for a long time. I mean, don't get me wrong. He was a great player and he was a, been a great general manager. The Ducks have had some unbelievable success, you know, over the last couple of decades here. But Ryan Whitney, former player and current Spittin' Chicklets host, which is my second favorite podcast after this one. He played in the league for a long time. He said, I have zero clue. What this is about, this is quote tweeting the Ducks uh, investigation. I have zero clue what this is about, but Bob Murray is one of the biggest pricks I've ever met in the game of hockey. So so pretty strong language there from, from Mr. Whitney. And, you know, people are saying, so why has nothing been done about this in the past? We've known that he was one of the biggest you-know-whats in hockey for decades. Did you just say you-know-whats after you just gave the actual quote? So it's okay if it's in a quote, but it's not okay if you say it? <laughs> Absolutely. You cannot accredit that word to Jason Marr because I did not say it. Got it. Got it. <laughs> it's like the it's like the Michael Scott. You miss hundred percent of shots you don't take. Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott. So I did not say the word, but Ryan Whitney did. So let's put that on the record. I, I'm not sure that quote applies, but uh, certainly I am not opposed to any quotes of the office being used on this podcast. You know, wh while you mentioned that, it's another point kind of to mention in this Robert Sarver story. There is a minority owner of the Phoenix Suns who mentioned like 
hey, any any comment? I'm, I'm uh, you know kind of paraphrasing, but any comment uh, that's prescribed to uh, Robert Sarver wouldn't shock me at this point. So you have people that kind of come out from the woodwork and maybe they don't give a ringing endorsement of someone's character, but like, yeah, the guy's a loose cannon. He could do anything. It wouldn't shock me. So yeah, I mean, you got to watch those two. Uh, you got to watch all these stories, but why are these coming up now? And Karen, you and I spent a lot of time talking about it in the Chicago Blackhawks uh, segment of a previous podcast, but the Blackhawks, you know, and we'll get into you know the latest on that case. Blackhawks got dinged for not properly investigating something that was brought to their attention a decade ago. So the reason why the, the heads are rolling over at Chicago Blackhawks HQ is maybe not because, I mean, for all intents and purposes, the video coordinator in turn, you can, you could provide a little context, but he was disciplined, right? He was let go from the organization. They did do something, but what they didn't do is conduct this, at least by all indications, a full and unfettered, transparent, open investigation to tell the world that something occurred, right? Obviously everyone's going to be innocent until proven guilty, but if you don't conduct this investigation, you don't tell the public that, hey, something might be going on. The optics look really bad. Taryn, you, you and I spent so much time when the allegations came to light about the Chicago Blackhawks, about, um, you know, alleged player assault between a team employee and, and a player, young player. This was during the Eastern Conference Finals. And someone at Chicago Blackhawks HQ made the decision, let's not tell the public that this thing is going on. Let's sweep it under the rug. And that sweeping under the rug, you know, that dirt under the rug, the skeletons in the closet remained in place for a decade. So, again, we're talking about the playbook for trying to manage these team, you know, allegations. Hey, say something happened and we're hiring a very expensive, very fancy law firm to start investigating. That's, I think, the, the tone that we're seeing. So, Taryn, you know, fill us in. You know, the last two I, I want to cover, both, uh, both in hockey, but both dealing with sexual assault allegations. Those are certainly, I think, on a, on a spectrum. Those are the, the most serious of, of any allegation you could raise. But, Taryn, I know we spent a lot of time talking about the Black Bucks. Tell us, uh, tell us the latest on that front. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned the Kyle Beach who uh, was the black ace that was abused by Brad Aldrich, the video coach with the Blackhawks. We discussed it before and, and Beach came forward, which was a really powerful interview. There was a question after that to Commissioner Gary Bettman of the NHL as to whether the NHL would be providing counseling services for the second John Doe, the high school student that was abused by Brad Aldrich a few years later as a result of the Blackhawks not really putting anything in the personnel file as to why he was allowed to freely resign, uh, which was obviously that he was engaging in sexual misconduct. So the commissioner, I guess, reviewed the case and has decided that the NHL is not going to pay for that therapy, which really seems like another misstep. The easiest thing I think that they could possibly do right now is to cover this, but I guess that they don't want to get into the position where they're covering it when it was the team that was at fault. So because they're currently the second John Doe and the Blackhawks are currently engaged in settlement talks, I think that the NHL wants to leave it to the Blackhawks to manage, but it just seems like another like terrible PR hit at a time when they could use any sort of positive publicity and and really just seems like the right thing to do. Now, even if the therapy is covered as part of the settlement agreement with the Blackhawks, it's it just seems like kind of a missed opportunity. Why wouldn't you just go ahead and say, like, if it's not part of the settlement agreement, then the NHL is willing to cover it. It seems like you could have best of both worlds there. Jason, any thoughts? It's just totally 
I mean, I was going to say shocking, but it's really not shocking. But, it, you know, at the same time, you're sitting here and you're saying what a nominal cost they could have spent to really just, you know, somewhat appease the public. So that's just kind of the, the bad lens of this. You know, if you want to look at it from a PR perspective, it seems like an obvious move for the NHL to say, hey, we'll step up here and we'll provide uh, a counseling and just cover the costs for someone that had their just entire young adulthood shaken up by, you know, just a heinous act. And that's one way to look at it. And they totally failed from that PR perspective, which is, you know, pretty devoid of emotion as it is. But then there's the, the perspective that, that we should be taking, which is, hey, someone in our hockey community did something heinous and we have an opportunity to somewhat make amends for what happened here, to somewhat just fill in the void that, we, that, that has caused us. And that would be to, to provide counseling and just help with the costs and to do everything possible to make this family feel like they're being heard and respected and that you're looking to help. And they failed on both fronts. They couldn't even get the PR right. Forget about being a genuinely good organization who wants to help those in the hockey community that were wronged by it. They couldn't even get it right on the PR front. You know, the mother of John Doe too had a really powerful, heart-wrenching interview on TSN. And, and she didn't really mince words here. She said, I think Bettman needs a new job, that he needs to retire. I don't think he has empathy for kids or even young adults. So pretty powerful words there from the mother. You know, no, no mother wants to have their child go through anything close to that. So you can't imagine what she has experienced over these years. My heart goes out to her and the family, and obviously the victim. But, you know, the fact that the NHL couldn't step up here and, and do something to try to appease the wrongs is just totally shocking. And, you know, everyone is saying, what is going on in the NHL right now? Because... They're just missing the mark left and right. And something's got to change. I don't know if it means Batman's got to be out, but something's got to change. And Pete Parisi had a, a great piece on Conduct Detrimental this week. It's got a great title yeah. uh, asking that, uh, that the NHL clean it the puck up. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping that we will see some movement. Eight years, eight years since this incident happened with a, a high school student and his mother is on Sports Center uh, on TSN pleading with the NHL that her son can't afford health insurance will they help him at least start the healing process after nearly a decade where the NHL has really left him high and dry the nominal restorative acts like like taking Aldrich's name off the cup that's all well and good but the real meat and potatoes here is to help these people who have been wronged who have been lied to by the NHL and by the Blackhawks and really help them move forward. And, and it's a miss. It's a whiff by the NHL. Dan? I mentioned, you know, again, this is a, a legal podcast, so we have to give our legal advice or legal analysis, insights, good or bad. Uh, I think people, you know, our, our St. Louis fans know, we don't always say the uh, most positive things about the lawsuit. Like, I don't really think it's fair that case is being tried in the city of St. Louis, but it is what it is, but we got to, you got to explain it good and bad. Why I bring that up here. I think the owners are, you know, we've had so many of these cases in such a short amount of time. You pay these big law firms, you, you pay smart lawyers ways to kind of manage the chaos. So one way, which I pointed out earlier is right. If you hear anything brewing within the organization that is from the top down. So let's say, you know, you're an owner and you hear some misconduct that occurs beneath you launch the investigation and say, hey, I am the owner, right? Someone spoke to Sham Sharni at a certain point and the messaging was relayed that Jody Allen and the Blazers were investigating uh, something that an employee did underneath them. You know, the owner is safe in that context, right? They're investigating. What else do you want, you know, the head of the company to do other than investigate it? So that's number one. 
Number two, you know, I've settled my, my fair share of cases of my career. If the plaintiff or a, we'll say an accuser, whatever, whatever term you want to use, they don't feel like they're being heard. You, you have to worry a little bit more about the case prolonging and persisting in, in our narrative. Plaintiffs generally bring cases for one of two reasons. They'll bring it for some type of monetary compensation. They want to be paid to be made whole, which is a totally fair reason. That's why the civil court exists. And the other one, right, is to hold people accountable. Those are generally reasons number one and number two. We've spent so much time in, on this podcast talking about Deshaun Watson. You have 21 different accusers there. They have all different types of sensibilities, all different types of motivations to get someone to settle. You have to find something that's going to appease all 21 people. And if one or two of them wants to just hold Deshaun Watson accountable, hold his feet to the, the fire and, and make him sit for a deposition, right, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to settle that case. So for Watson's perspective, just as a quick dilute, I'm told that he doesn't want to settle one case without settling all of them. And that's what makes the case go away. That's what makes people stop talking about the particular situation. So what you have in the Chicago Blackhawks world, which you guys are both touching on, I think the NHL wants to settle this case. I think the NHLPA wants to settle it. But Kyle Beach is sitting here like, hey, congrats. Now you want to make this thing go away. I'm not going to make it go away so easily. I hold the cards here, and this case is going to go on for as long as I want it. Maybe it's a little bit about money because he filed a civil case, but certainly he wants a story out there and he's gone public with, with his name, right? Same thing in Deshaun Watson. Once the accusers had to go public with their name, they're not going away so quickly. So that'll transition us to, to the last of the team allegations, the Pittsburgh Penguins. So in the aftermath of the Chicago Blackhawks situation, an allegation of sexual assault, an allegation that it was a cover-up occurred, names like Mario Lemieux, uh, Bill Guerin, some hockey greats were being uh, you know, brought into this case. And there was a you know, press conference or a statement that was put out that they were going to go after the hockey royalty with respect to the Pittsburgh Penguins. All of a sudden, Pittsburgh kind of shifts gears and they make moves to settle this case. So that's kind of bringing me to option two, which is the team MO. If you do hear inkling of a potential lawsuit, settle it, right? It's certainly uh, going to be worse if you let this prolong and then you settle it later. Why not get this thing away and, and kind of shift the story? So Jason, Taryn, I know you guys have both been following this over at Pittsburgh. So what, what's the latest on that? We didn't even have time to, to talk about the allegations that settled so quickly. But, you know, uh, I'll, I'll give the floor to you guys. Yeah, so this stems out of, you know, the former minor league coach, Jared Scaldi, and his wife, Erin. Jared was an assistant coach for the AHL's uh, Wilkes-Barre Scranton, uh, which is the affiliate of the Penguins, the Pittsburgh Penguins Hockey Club. So the, the coach at the time was John Clark Donatelli. He was the head coach. You know, there was allegedly an incident after a game once where Donatelli made really unwanted, unprovoked advances, which uh, rose to the level of sexual assault. You know, the lawsuit was filed by the, by the Scaldis. And the Penguins were named in this lawsuit. And, and interestingly, you know, the Penguins are the one who settled here. So we don't know currently what's going on in terms of Donatelli's liability. If there's any other case being brought against Donatelli and, and what that looks like in the progress. You know, we've, we've seen talks of, of a complaint likely to be filed in addition. You know, on, on October 5th, there was a complaint filed. So we know that. But, you know, the, the Penguins were named here because the Scaldis are alleging that they hired a known sexual assaulter. So, you know, through a theory of negligent hiring, we have some tort liability here and the Penguins knew they could be potentially on the hook. And like you said, you know, maybe the smarter move to avoid a lawsuit in its entirety and, and you know, 
just try to uh, settle the matter. Said in a statement from the attorneys, we are pleased to announce the resolution of the matter involving Aaron Scaldi and the Pittsburgh Penguins organization, which has come to a satisfactory conclusion for all parties involved. The Penguins said that they received a report in June 2019 about the incident, which took place in November 2018. Upon receiving this report, the Penguins claim they immediately conducted a thorough investigation and took prompt action. So within a few days, they claimed the former coach who was alleged to have been involved in the incident departed from the organization. So, you know, they, they really cover their tracks there and seem to absolve themselves of liability, you know, based on at least their statement. But the settlement may say otherwise. I mean, like we discussed, maybe they just didn't want to face this lawsuit and the potential for extreme financial liability and public uh, perception and, and, you know, co- the court of public opinion. So they may have wanted this matter to go away. But, you know, they, they claim to have had settled this pretty quickly and have taken action pretty swiftly, you know, upon when the allegations were brought to their attention. So I don't know the validity to that, but it sounds like they did a solid job, at least in their response. But the hire here is the main concern, you know, to hire a known sexual assaulter is an offense in and of itself. And one that was clearly blameworthy. I think that one thing with the Blackhawks scandal that we've seen is just the incredible amount of fallout collateral damage that has resulted after the the general block report came out. So part of that was that Stan Bowman had to step down as uh, USA hockey's general manager. And it was thought that Bill Guerin was going to take that role. Well, Bill Guerin is directly implicated here. He's now the general manager of the uh, Minnesota Wild. He's the one that Scald is saying that told him to keep quiet about this sexual assault. So obviously that's that's very troubling. Yeah, credit to the, the Penguins, I guess. They preempted the possible news conference that was going to detail the charges for the civil matter more directly and in greater detail. So they avoided that by settling now. And and I guess uh, all the parties will move forward. But yeah, it's uh, just a number of scandals. It's just tough to comprehend the number of things that are currently going on uh, at this intersection of sports and law. So I'm glad that we had a chance to really run through all of those. Yeah, it's a lot, you know, with the the beat of sports law, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Rogers. I'm sure we'll, we'll get to rugs too on this, on this extended issue edition of the podcast, but we can't lose sight of, of some of the more important stories. Like we, we the stories are sometimes fun, right? Uh, certainly St. Louis story is really fun, but you can't lose sight, sight of these. As for the Penguins, I guess we should, we should talk about it, right? I've worked on the defense side. I'm, I'm more working now closer to the plaintiff side, even though I do have some defense cases. But you, you settle a case for, uh, you know, one of two reasons, right? Either you find yourself thinking when you do the analysis in your head, hey, we are likely going to be found or there, there is some significant percentage that we're going to be found culpable by a court or guilty if it's a criminal court. And you want to lessen the blow and you want to take a, a deal because you think you're going to get, you think you're going to lose in some respect, you have some percentage that you're going to lose. So you settle to try to get out from under that. You save yourself the time and energy and you just get out from under it. So I'm speaking kind of broad brushstrokes, but that's one, right? You actually think you have a decent chance of losing. The other reason you settle a case, and we're seeing it more in the social media world, and I guess you know, this is kind of a PSA to, to everyone out there. In courts, the burden is always on the, the person bringing the case. So it's the prosecutor in a criminal case. And in a normal civil case, it's the accuser, right? Or, you know, whoever uh, is the plaintiff that's saying they got hurt, car accident or whatever it is. The person bringing the case bears the burden of proof. So we as lawyers know that very well. Judges know that very well. On social media, I think the narrative is written and I see it in the replies like, you know, that's it. He's done. He's guilty. This is disgusting. You know, everyone has a right to be presumed innocent, that they didn't do anything wrong until the other person proves that. But 
I, I think these teams now kind of, you know, cognizant of that narrative, maybe what happened to the Penguins, you know, and, and any release that's usually signed usually says, Jason, you kind of mentioned like, hey, we didn't do anything wrong. We, we are paying you guys some settlement money, but we're not admitting any type of fault. So that's the other reason that sometimes teams will kind of settle. Maybe they don't think they did anything wrong. They feel very confident that there's going to be a finding of innocence or right or that they weren't liable for whatever it was. But they're like, you know what? The damage to our reputation from this case floating out there for two, three years, even though we might win at the end of the day, people, you know, they, they pay attention to the headlines and maybe they don't pay attention to the actual result of the case two, three years later. And then also, right, there's a cost benefit analysis. The cost to fight one of these cases all the way to a verdict is certainly very, very expensive. So if you can get out early and pay that cost early on and save yourself the bad PR, maybe you do it. We've talked a lot about in the St. Louis Rams cycle, you know, some of these teams have spent in the eight figures in terms of legal fees, and there are 32 NFL teams. So, you know, do some basic math there. It's possible the global legal spend on this case exceeds $100 million easily. So there's a report, and, and you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it more with Dan on our, our next episode, but a report that Stan Kroenke offered St. Louis $100 million to settle the case. That offer, $100 million, is a lot of money if that's offered on day one. But to offer that on the eve of trial, when your legal spend probably already exceeds that across the NFL, that offer doesn't seem like much. So if you had $100 million in the bank, you probably should have offered it early up. And maybe that's what happened with Pittsburgh. Uh, it's certainly, uh, I think, a plausible reading of that situation. They said, hold on, let's make our best, our best offer early, and, uh, and then we'll be done with it. We'll wash our hands with it. We don't have to depose Mario Lemieux and all of our hockey greats. And the story will at least to some extent uh, dissipate with respect to the Penguins. So, you know, we give you the narrative. I think that's probably what should have occurred at St. Louis early on, a, a very big number offered early on in the case. But I think that's what happened with Pittsburgh. Is that, I don't know, uh, that's my reading of it. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think that's a totally fair reading. It seems like they got out ahead in front of it. They claimed to in the investigation portion of it, and certainly the settlement. And, you know, this case is not going away. As you said, there's other implicated parties. Of course, the actual offender, Donatelli, but, you know, Bill Guerin could be implicated. And Taryn, like you said, I, I want to see what happens with USA Hockey. We had a brief hiatus from the Olympics, something I'm completely looking forward to. You know, Stan Bowman's out. He was the GM of USA Hockey. He's out from the Blackhawks allegations, or, you know, not allegations, the Blackhawks sexual assault. Then you had Bill Guerin, who was likely to step in. What's going to happen with this now? He's uh, a longtime USA hockey guy. He's been around the team. So, you know, I don't know his level of culpability here. If there's any level, uh, I would say move on and just find the next person. There's plenty of, you know, worthy candidates. Maybe you go for like a Jeff Gordon type. But, you know, certainly interesting to see where this case goes, because this is not the end. This is just the Pittsburgh Penguins have settled. But, you know, this is not the end of the case. So I think that's it for the teams. You know, I, I still do think this is a trend that, that's going to continue to happen. Again, we, we mentioned it. You have somebody speak out either from an organization or from a certain employer. It's going to empower other people to do so. And now we're seeing it across the sports landscape between football, basketball, hockey. I think it's too, too obvious to ignore at this point that, that something is happening. If it becomes known worldwide as the accountability era, I will certainly take credit for it, but we'll certainly keep an eye on it. Okay. So speaking of, you know, innocent until proven guilty, we spent a lot of time in our last podcast talking about Henry Ruggs. You know, important to know, uh, you know, I think it's, it's understood when, when Dan and I are, when any of us get in the podcast, we talk about it. We're just reporting the news. We want to put a, a kind of disclaimer in for, for the history of time. You know, everyone is innocent until proven guilty. The burden of proof is always on the plaintiff, but you have to, you know, it's, we're a sports law podcast. We put the allegations or reports out there and we make sense of it. We say if we think they're, they're plausible, they're not plausible. We talk if the case should be settled, shouldn't be settled. But that's kind of what you have to do. You can't not report on something until it's confirmed. You know, sometimes you just got to report it out there and people can make their own opinions of it. That said, 
right? The Henry Ruggs case, the facts that are out there right now are from the, uh, the police, the 156 miles an hour, the 120 miles an hour. The attorney that was hired in this case, we, we referenced him briefly on, on the last podcast, David Chesnoff, big name attorney in the criminal space. You know, he, he appeared at the hearing. There was a hearing uh, earlier this week. The note essentially said, you know, his Chesnoff's messages to the media and to the public, please don't prejudge. Let us do our work in the courtroom. That's the direct quote. And the sentiment of his comments were, hey, we as the attorneys can't really say anything. Rugs can't really say anything. So the media can say whatever they want. The police can say whatever they want, but we can't. And Chesnoff, from his experience, and it's not so di- different than uh, I'm sure any of our practicing attorneys and, and law students will read in casebooks, sometimes the initial reporting of the facts, that's not really what comes out uh, at the end of the day, right? Sometimes you, you kind of buy the rumors, sell the news, and that's sometimes what, what occurs here. So people are very quick to say, Henry Ruggs will spend the rest of his life behind bars, let alone he's never going to play again because he's going to be in jail for the rest of his life. That's not really how criminal cases work. The burden of proof is, is on the prosecution to prove their case. Since we last were on this, three additional charges were assessed to uh, Henry Ruggs. A second DUI charge because of the injuries suffered by his girlfriend who was in the car with him, as well as a reckless driving charge from the, you know, the injuries sustained by his girlfriend. And then last but not least, a firearms charge because uh, Ruggs was uh, you know, allegedly intoxicated at the time. So it's a total of five charges. And per reports, I've found uh, convicted or found guilty on all, all five charges. He's facing 50 plus years in prison. So it's a huge number. It's a scary number. Chesnoff is out here, you know, representing his client. And he's saying, listen, let us do our work. Don't assume anything. We have a case to, we, you know, we got to get to work, but we have a case. So we'll see. Taryn, I know you're reading. Uh, there's a little bit more that came out from that hearing. What do you have on that front? Yeah, David Chesnoff is currently trying to get the judge in Nevada to block, temporarily block access for the prosecution to uh, look at Ruggs' medical records. And attorney Peter Christensen was able to obtain that same temporary block on behalf of Ruggs' girlfriend, who uh, allegedly had surgery on that arm after the accident. So it will be interesting. There will be a hearing on December 8th to determine whether those uh, medical records for either party, for Ruggs or his girlfriend, should be turned over to uh, the police and prosecutors. And I think that the reason being is that those medical records are key to uh, determine which additional felony charges that you mentioned that Ruggs would be facing. So it's a big deal if they're able to uh, obtain this block, maybe that you know Ruggs is only facing that initial two to 20 that we were talking about instead of this now close to 50. Jason? Yeah, to echo what you were saying, you know, a little federalism at play here as Chesnoff cited some state privacy law, kind of arguing that state law supersedes the federal health records, uh, privacy requirements. So even the judge said, Judge Susan Backham said, this is an unusual request. And like you said, she will make a decision on December 8th. So we will certainly look out for that. Uh, Mark your calendars about a month from now. But, you know, I really am not buying Chesnoff's reasoning here. And, you know, maybe he's just trying to delay the records being furnished over and he would be successful at that because he'd probably have to send them right now if there wasn't such a late hearing on this matter. And, you know, that's why this kind of case just takes so long. We may not know the ultimate conviction for a very long time because, you know, you have a simple, seemingly simple matter like just the medical records of Ruggs or his girlfriend, which, you know, is going to take at least a month. So everyone sit tight. We'll get our um, fix on the Ruggs case as time moves on. But, you know, just interesting words from Chesnoff today. Certainly we'll hear more from him, although he's citing ethical uh, requirements to silence. So we'll see if he opens up a little bit. 
Yeah, and I think just putting a, a pin in rugs, we had a couple people reach out to us after last podcast and they said, when do you think rugs will be suspended? How long will they be suspended for? You know, maybe just a procedural note, but Ruggs is not a member. He's not in the NFL right now. He's a former Las Vegas wide receiver. So we saw this in the Antonio Brown context, you know, a year or so ago. When Antonio Brown was a free agent, the NFL was not inclined to issue any type of suspension or punishment because it was, he's not on a team. Why do you have to issue any type of suspension? So th- there is no concept in the NFL, kind of something like time served, which we have talked about in a, in a prior episode with Deshaun Watson. Ruggs doesn't get credit. This doesn't count as a suspension right now. The fact that he's missing this weekend's games and missed last weekend's games. The NFL is in no rush to issue any type of punishment because he's, again, not a member of a team. So we'll deal with the criminal case first, and I'm sure there will be a civil case from you know, the, the victim's family, maybe from his girlfriend because of her injuries. And only then, right, the wheels of justice turn very slow. Jason, as you mentioned, this case, the criminal case is going to go on for a while. So it could be years until the NFL even issues how long he's going to be suspended for. So you know, just, just to pay attention to that. As a programming note, Jason's going to be leaving us. Mike's going to be joining us for the remainder of the podcast. Jason, before you leave, first of all, thank you for, for coming on. Behind the scenes, Jason runs the, the blog, which has been blowing up on our site. We have articles coming in every day. Jason is the man coordinating all those, coordinating the release, and usually drafting the, the lovely tweet uh, about the article. So Jason, first of all, appreciate all your efforts on, on the website, conductcatchmountain.com. Any parting thoughts uh, before you get out of here? Yeah, absolutely. You know, always a pleasure to be part of this team and the great work that we do in our reporting. Parting thought, you know, this episode has definitely started on a bit of a somber note and to no fault, no fault of our own based on the actions of those implicated in sports law. But I want to just give a quick shout out to Montreal Canadiens goalie Carey Price. And, you know, this speaks to the invisible battle that we don't know people are fighting. He stepped away from hockey this year after playing his heart out in the Stanley Cup. Not so long ago, just a few months ago, he was in the Stanley Cup. Turns out he's been in a bit of a dark place in the last few years here. He checked himself into a residential treatment facility for substance abuse. He, you know, he said he's working through years of neglecting his own mental health, which may take some time to repair. And he's taking it day by day here. So big shout out to Carrie Price here. You know, we lost a player in the hockey community, uh, Jimmy Hayes, to a substance abuse problem. And to have someone as monumental as Carrie Price, you know, arguably the greatest goalie in Canadian's history and such a storied franchise. Really, really huge thing. And I'm happy for him. I hope he gets the help he needs and that he can get back to playing hockey whenever the time is right. So hats off to Carey Price and uh, the organization for helping him through this. And we'll see him on the other side. So again, guys, thanks for having me. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you, Jason. Keep doing uh, an incredible job on the website. And yeah, we'll, we'll speak soon. Dan, before we kick it to Mike, we always try to keep our listeners entirely up to date as best we can. So we have some breaking news here. Bob Murray, the Anaheim Ducks general manager, we didn't really know exactly what the allegations were that they were looking into, but he has announced that he is going to resign his position and he's going to seek counseling for alcohol abuse. So good on him to get the help that he needs. The NHL uh, is saying that they stand by his decision to resign. And one more interesting tidbit with this is that the NHL has made a big deal about their uh, their hotline, which you can call in issues, uh, inappropriate behavior and, and that sort of thing. And this allegation about Bob Murray came from that tip line. So they want everyone to know that the tip line is functional. And, and that's where we are on that story now. Taryn, appreciate that update. Obviously, we want to stay accurate and breaking news happens. We just got to adjust on the fly. Taryn, speaking of breaking news, a tip line told me Something about you, Taryn. Are you ready for this? 
Yeah. So, do you know what I'm talking about? I can talk about a number of things from our tip line. That, <laughs> I, I think I have an idea. Well, Taryn, the, the tip line, it says a lot of bad things about you, but one good thing came in, actually, of the, of the 100 tips that we got. One of them was actually positive about you, Taryn, and that was... Actually, you know what, Taryn? If you know what it is, go ahead. Go ahead. You can, you can tell our listeners. What is it? Today's the day that uh, all of the, the high school student athletes are signing their national letters of intent, and I have also signed my letter of intent, and I have uh, decided to sign up with Themis for Bar View. Again, this podcast is sponsored by Themis, and that was partially a motivating factor in addition to the fact that I enjoyed my experience studying for the MPRE with Themis's free MPRE review course. So if you are interested in signing up for Bar Review courses, which I know that we have a lot of law students like me who listen to this podcast, you can go to themisbar.com slash con detrimental, and that'll let them know that we sent you. So again, that's themisbar.com slash con detrimental. And we're so glad that Themis is sponsoring the this podcast. And Dan, you're uh, about to appear on a, uh, a panel, a, a sports law panel with Themis, right? That is true and accurate, Taryn. Listen, Taryn, that was not the tip that I was talking about. That was a good thing. That wasn't the good thing. A belated congrats, Taryn, on your engagement. How about that? I realized we did not talk about this at all on the podcast. A little belated. <laughs> Yeah, uh, only shortly belated, given that that happened in July. But thank you so much. Oh, well, better late than never, Taryn. I congratulated you in real life. And uh, I know you came to New York and you didn't say hello to me. So we're even, we're even. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the panel later on the podcast. Um, I think it's time to bring Mike in. We've kept him waiting long enough. Mike, welcome to Conic Detrimental. How's it going, buddy? How's it going? We'll fill you in, but we obviously uh, had a lot of teams to discuss. We talked about Henry Ruggs uh, and where where I wanted to take this conversation now is some other punishment that was issued by the NFL. It's a story I brought up in my class on Monday night and it got a lot of feedback back and forth. This is the Aaron Rodgers saga, you know, with COVID-19, the appearance on the Pat McAfee show. And and now um, the NFL has weighed in and essentially said we are fining the Green Bay Packers $300,000. We are fining Aaron Rodgers essentially $15,000 along with Alan Lazard, a wide receiver on the team for failing to follow uh, proper COVID protocol. Mike, I know you've been following this story very closely. Uh, you bring up Aaron Rodgers and elicits a reaction out of every NFL fan, positive or negatively. On the sports law side, though, we've got to talk about this punishment. You think it fits the crime, Mike? 15000 15000 was a going rate that they were doing last year, too. Every time a player violated some sort of COVID protocol last year, 15000 was pretty much the going rate. 300000 for the Packers. Last year, of course, the big breakout that we saw was with the Tennessee Titans, and they were fined 350000 But, I mean, there was, a, there was a number of different fines that kind of happened last year, especially you saw with the coaches. Anytime a coach wasn't wearing a mask, there were upwards of 100000 100, But anytime you saw a player violates some sort of policy, it was 15,000. However, here we have something completely different. We have Aaron Rodgers blatantly lying and openly violating the rules numerous times. So let's just map this out for, for everyone here. Packers come into the season already kind of on the fence with Aaron Rodgers because his entire offseason was just like a blur. Everyone was worried about whether he was going to play or not, where I don't even know. There was, there was a whole mess with that. But he does come in. They lose game one. And it's like, uh-oh, like Packers are not good. 
Like, so Rogers was talking all this, all, all this games and, you know, his off season didn't need to work out and they lose game one. So everyone's up in arms. Then they win seven straight. So, and that includes beating the undefeated Cardinals who are on an absolute tear behind Kyler Murray. He then tests positive for COVID and everyone starts to question whether or not he's vaccinated. Now, Previously, he had a, you know, I'm, I'm sure all of you have seen the video at this point where he was directly asked by media, you know, have you been vaccinated? And, you know, the quote that you see everywhere now and is, yeah, I have been immunized. So at the time, he was kind of praised for his talk of like being open, being like saying, you know, whatever your policy is, it's your, it's kind of your body. Like if you want to be vaccinated, that's your choice. As long as you follow the protocols, all this stuff. However, he's saying this, knowing he's not vaccinated, not wearing a mask in front of the media. Now looking back at that, it's just a horrible situation. So we see him go onto the Pat McAfee show and he really digs his heels in. He's like, no, I stand by what I said. Like, basically it was like, if I got asked a follow-up question, like, have I been vaccinated? Then I would have elaborated like hindsight's 2020 here, Aaron. Like that was complete BS. Like you obviously were just lying and trying to skirt every conversation here. So if we look back at the precedent, 15,000 is normal. That's what the NFL has been, has been finding different players. However, given the situation, the NFL and the Packers are really tiptoeing around Aaron Rodgers. They've been doing it since the preseason. So I don't think the 15,000 is enough, but again, that's their precedent. That's what they're going to do. If they, if they decide to go higher than that, I think the only thing elevated from that is maybe they, they talk about suspension. The biggest thing here is Rodgers is on the 10 day, you know, quarantine, whatever he could return Saturday. As long as he gets cleared, he could play this Sunday. So uh, that would, that would be a whole nother, firestorm of what's going to happen but Taryn I know you wanted to jump in what what do you got funny thing about the NFL what they care about and what they don't care about so uh, Dallas Cowboys wide receiver CD Lamb has been fined $20,000 on two separate occasions for not having his jersey tucked in so it's like you know following the protocols telling the truth about your vaccination status or you know having your jersey tucked in properly it's a little bit silly and I don't think that Rodgers really did himself any favors he clearly wanted to uh, sort of portray himself as the victim when he went on uh, McAfee's podcast. And I, I think he's taken an appropriate amount of heat for it. Well, here's, here's my question, Dan, do you, do you think the punishment's kind of worth it here? Do you think, I think what we need to figure out is whether or not the Packers knew, maybe he was hiding it from the Packers too, but if the Packers knew about it, 300,000 might not be enough because what we saw last year too was the New Orleans Saints had constant issues with COVID protocol issues, and they lost a draft pick in their 2022 draft. So what, what do you think about the whole thing, Grant? You know, a couple things. And I, I, dug, I dug a little deep into this, you know, so just as a way of brief background, we have not talked about this topic on the podcast. We had a loaded week last week. We didn't have time to cover it. But Rodgers applied for an exemption from the NFL. You know, the, the long and short is that he, he was trying to do these kind of non-traditional medicines to, you know, increase his immune system, whatever you want to call it. But not, he wasn't getting the vaccine and he applied for an exemption from some combination of, hey, I'm allergic, allegedly allergic to the uh, two of the vaccines uh, other than J&J, which I guess he couldn't take for whatever reason. But he also was trying these non-traditional remedies. So he applied for an exemption. He didn't you know, necessarily think he was going to get it. He doesn't get it. So the NFL knows he does not have an exemption. The Green Bay Packers certainly know he doesn't have an exemption. Yet, you know, that comment, he was asked directly, are you vaccinated? And his response was, yes, 
I'm immunized. And if you listen to his full statement, he talks about, you know, other players don't get vaccinated. That's their decision. And he's talking as if he, he is vaccinated and other players have made this decision not to get vaccinated. So and beyond that, if you're a member of the media, Aaron Rodgers is not wearing his mask when, you know, normally unvaccinated players would be. So his outward appearance to the media, it, it certainly misled people. So I listened to his podcast. Uh, I listened to all 40 plus minutes of with Pat McAfee. And I didn't get the impression that Aaron was remorseful for having misled people. I was looking for that type of apology, whether he meant to or he, he did it, you know, recklessly. That wasn't the apology he gave. He used basically used the platform to tell everybody to think for yourself on medical decisions, whatever. But he didn't really apologize. He, he very clearly and unequivocally said he didn't follow certain protocol, certain mass protocol because he didn't want to because he didn't think they were fair rules. Then he started to you know, reference Martin Luther King for not following just rules or whatever he wanted to get on. He got so much crap for that online. And I think, again, I don't want to be on the, the position that says, do this, do that. Like, I'm not a doctor, right? That's not my, it's not my role in this podcast. But Aaron, Aaron in, in terms of following rules, Aaron basically said, yeah, I know what the rules were and I willfully violated it and I don't really care and I'm still going to violate it because I don't think it's a good rule. That's not Aaron's position. So it's not like Alan Lazard, right, didn't go on the Pat McAfee show and talk about how stupid the NFL's rules were. Aaron Rodgers did. Yet Aaron Rodgers and Alan Lazard, who's a, you know, maybe a streaming wide receiver in some formats, like he's not Aaron Rodgers. I think a larger and a louder message should have been sent to Rodgers. I think no matter what you think about the virus or, you know, vaccinations, I think you all, everyone agrees that if there's a rule that your employer requires you to follow and you don't follow it, there has to be some form of punishment. And if you double down on that and publicly make a statement about how stupid the rule is, you probably should be some extra punishment for you. So no, I do not think the punishment fits the crime. And Taryn, you make a great point. At the end of the day, who can we be mad at? The NFLPA, uh, they were okay with those types of punishments, with a $15,000 punishment for COVID protocol and a $20,000 punishment possible for CeeDee Lamb, who as a wardrobe issue. I think it's the, the issue is with the NFL and the NFLPA agreeing to those fines. But, you know, maybe there's another way to punish Aaron, be it on the, uh, you know, personal conduct policy or, or some form of conduct detrimental. I just think it's a horrendous look for him to get a 15K slap on the wrist for, for making that type of statement. He said it. He said the name of the podcast. Bing. Oh, how about this? Bing bong. Oh. New York Knicks reference right there. Oh, New York. Oh, New York. Okay, team. I mean, let's see what happens with Rodgers. He screwed me in fantasy this week. I had to start Ryan Tannehill, and I lost by 10 points, even though I would have had a great matchup with Rodgers playing the Chiefs. So I'm a little bit extra salty at at Rodgers today. I've been talking to a lot of people. Maybe we'll put this in in the legal life advice, but I've been talking to people about college sports recently. done a couple panels on it. Now, we have another, you know, we keep having these landmark breaking news in college sports. The world of college sports, as we know, is, again, fundamentally changing, right? The NLRB is coming in. And essentially signaling that unions might be a thing in college sports in the next decade, if not sooner. NIL is happening. Athletes are getting paid by businesses. And here's the newest one. The NCA is basically saying, we don't want to do anything anymore. We are divesting ourselves of all of our power in a new 18 and a half page constitution that's being put up for a vote by the NCA in a, in a couple of weeks, couple of months. I think it's a, I think it's January. But yeah, we've been talking a lot on this podcast what the future of the NCA will be. And, and now we kind of have it. It's memorialized uh, into paper. The NCAA wants to essentially divest themselves of any shred of power that they have, and they want to allow this, um, and no pun intended, punt power to the schools and divisions to come up with these rules. So I'll open it up. Taryn, Mike, what do, you, what do you guys think of the latest on the NCAA front? 
I think that this is something that we, the royal we, have been talking about for some time. And that when the NCAA really took a step back during the coronavirus protocols and, and establishing those and really left it up to the conferences, especially the Power Five conferences, to sort of decide how they were going to go about determining their policies on a conference by conference basis. That really kind of spelled the end to the NCAA. And then since then, we've gotten the additional hits, uh, obviously the Alston case being a big one. And then the NCAA's interim policy on name, image, and likeness sort of uh, opening up this wild, wild west that we've talked about. So the current NCAA constitution is something like 43 pages. And this new draft, which was released on Monday, is about 18 and a half or 19 pages. So it's really like cutting down in more than half uh, of what it was before. So next week, the uh, NCAA Constitution Convention is going to occur, which is going to be looking at the process of restructuring Division I governance. And uh, some changes, uh, Ross Dellinger at Sports Illustrated did a great job uh, just boiling these down. The main changes in this new constitution would be uh, a shrinking, less important role for the Board of Governors. That would be decreasing from 21 members to nine members and a lot of that authority being stripped and then given down to the conferences and giving to the individual divisions as well. The second thing is really like memorializing name, image, and likeness rights. So they're going to be uh, saying, you know, players can profit from their name, image, and likeness, but they don't want the schools to be paying them directly. So that is still the line that they're attempting to draw in terms of uh, what is left of amateurism. And they are also going to be maintaining the revenue split. And that seems like a minor thing, but it's important because even though Division Two and Division Three sports don't generally generate a ton of revenue that is being div uh, divvied up here, by maintaining the roughly 8% that those two divisions share, they're more likely to get those member conferences and schools to vote in favor of this new constitution. So the last thing is that this kind of like sets the tone for the future. Uh, one of the members of the committee said that this is not talking about what the NCAA is going to look like in a year from now. It's talking about what is the future 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And so it'll be interesting to, to see what we end up with. I don't know what the NCAA is doing anymore. I honestly don't. I've said this a couple of times before, and I said that the NCAA, as we know it, was going to be completely different in the next 10 years. And I've even said that I don't think the NCAA as a governing body is going to exist in 10 years. I think this kind of alludes to what I'm saying. The NCAA is saying, screw this. We clearly can't do anything right. We need to push it all to the conferences because every time we have to make a decision, we get yelled and screamed at like Emmert's had enough. And he's like, fine, you take, like you deal with it. You make your decisions. You know, what's best for your schools. So you do that. I've said this before on the podcast. I think the NCAA as a governing body is going to do way better as an individual conference run system. I, I think when you have the own schools with their own bylaws, who have their own selfishness about their own schools, they, they want to do what's best for like the ACC wants to do what's best for the ACC. The SEC wants to do what's best for the SEC. So the, the NCAA has always been in this situation where like, it was like dreadful for a school to have to go to the board of governors to have some sort of decision or some sort of change. 
And the NCAA was known for not doing anything, not changing, or it would take 10 years for something to happen. So for them to say like, oh, we're looking down the road 10 to 20 years, I'm like, okay, fine, but you're not going to exist at that point anyways. You're already putting your board of governors from 21 to nine. What in 10 years, what are you going to have three? Like what, like you're not making any decisions here. You're just saying we're accepting of all of the rules that are being forced upon us because we can't make a decision. So you guys do what you want create your own rules, tell, you know, tell your athletes what you want to do. I mean, you have the NLRB now basically telling the NCAA your student athletes are employees. You have the Supreme Court saying that the NCAA is completely violating antitrust. And the NCAA is like, well, what about Major League Baseball? What about the NFL? Like, what about these other, like, it's just, the NCAA is like sick and tired of it. And I think they're just like, fine, here's some change. Like, it's just, I don't even know what they're trying to do. I have a hypothesis here, um, and it is a topic that we've talked about on this podcast before. You know, the SEC is building a super conference, which if you're a fan of college football is pretty apparent. If you're not, take my word for it. The SEC is collecting the top schools, uh, anyone they can get their hands on. They just recruited Texas and Oklahoma to join the conference. So, you know, we, we've seen super conferences try to pop their heads up in other sports, you know, most famously, or the most I'll say infamously in soccer. Uh, we did a whole episode on it, and it at one point, it was our most popular episode, the Super League Symposium. And then St. Louis Rams came along and blew that out of the water. But that was a, an effort by the top teams in a particular sport to congregate into one specific league and not have to revenue share with the lesser money teams, leagues, whatever you want to call it. But they were going to create a, you know, literally a super league with the top teams. So there are people, myself included, that thought the SEC was making a play potentially to defect from the NCAA and, and create a competitor to the NCAA. Now, what this essentially does, this draft of a constitution, if it's accepted, is essentially to say, you know what, we're sorry, SEC, you know, these big money schools, we're, we're not going to make life difficult for you. We're going to punt it. We're going to give you all the power you need. We're not going to do anything at all. You have to ask yourself, um, and Mike, this is why I, lo- I loved your comment. Why would the NCA on earth be doing this? If you want to read this document at a really high level, it, it is essentially divesting themselves of all potential power, all possible power. And they're usually they're carving out really one thing for themselves. In order to be an NCA member school, you're not allowed to pay your student athletes. Okay, that's it. That's the, the, the ground they want to die on. Congrats. Okay, well, for whatever reason, we could talk about that separately while they're doing that. Why would they be giving up all their power unless, right, they're like want to hang on by a thread, unless they were really concerned they were going to get, you know, carved out of this. So I, I was talking to someone else, uh, you know, another, another member of our sports law community. And he explained it to me as maybe this is their version of like, they just want to be a parent company, like a shell company, kind of like Meta, like Facebook, right? There's Facebook, <laughs> Instagram, Oculus, right? But then the NCA is up top and they just kind of, you know, behind the scenes, they collect 1% or whatever revenue they collect from all these different programs, but they don't do anything anymore. I don't know what other way to read it, but that, that makes a lot of sense to me that they were really concerned with their viability. And they said, you know what, let's just exist in form, but let's not really do anything and maybe no one will call us on it. I, I, it's the only way this makes sense to me, something like that. Yeah, basically, it seems like they only want to exist to put on the championships. They reserve some sort of enforcement power for themselves, but it's it seems like it's far less than it was before. One other thing that I wanted to point out going forward, Mike, you mentioned the NLRB. Um, there was the memo that the general counsel, Jennifer, Jennifer Abruzzo had uh, released um, over the summer or uh, early in the fall. And what she said is that the term student athlete shouldn't be used anymore and that she would view these students who are participating in athletic events as being employees. Well, in this constitution, 
they use the term student athlete 50 times. So you, you wonder whether that is a bit of a challenge to the NLRB's general counsel's office, whether they're taking it seriously or not. I don't know if you either of you had any thoughts on that. 100%. The NCAA doesn't want them to be employees because the NCAA doesn't want that, doesn't want to pay employee tax. That's going to break down so many other walls. Like the NCAA does not want the NLRB to like take control and say that their student athletes are employees. That's, I think that's why the biggest, the biggest pushback the NCAA is making is that their student athletes are not being paid. So name, image, and likeness is something separate. It's not because of their athletic ability. You know, the only reason that they have this kind of like, you know, a lot of them have like millions of followers on Instagram and stuff like that is because they're student athletes, but they're saying that this is their own deal. This is their own sponsorships. It's not affiliated with the school, even though, as we saw with Nicosi Perry, like schools can allow different sponsors or put down different sponsors. So I think the problem with, with creating all of these student athletes as employees is now the NCAA has to have a separate payroll or put them on the payroll or, or have some sort of employee status. I, I don't, I don't think they want to get into that. And maybe that's another reason why the NCAA is saying, screw this, we're out. We are not dealing with this. Not yeah. to mention all the benefits that they would have to pay out or uh, any sort of long-term health uh, provisions that they would have to make for athletes right. to get hurt. There's all sorts of complications that come with that. I agree with you. So you go um, in with a full ride, you come out with a 401k. Yeah. I, I, this, <laughs> this seems a lot uh, eerily, Mike, you just made me think of it eerily similar to what the NCAA did with the NIL movement. And they just said, you know what? We did have this rule book that we were going to give you. We've been working on it for a year. How exactly to deal with NIL, which can and can't do. And then it came uh, right about on the eve of July 1st of 2021. They're like, you know what? We're going to throw the book in the garbage. You guys are on your own. Fend for yourself. Wild, wild west. Everyone fend for themselves. And that's essentially what they're doing this time around. They're saying, you know what? We're not, we're not going to do anything anymore. We're going to seize power to everyone left and right. Why, why would one do that? I think number one hypothesis with the super conference thing, maybe, maybe that's it. But number two, again, we go back to this NCAA versus Austin decision that I think will shape, uh, has shaped and will continue to shape college sports for years. NCAA versus Austin, the United States Supreme Court case, Justice Kavanaugh, in his concurring opinion, writes, the NCAA is not above the law. And we've been on this podcast a couple of times and we said that is a thinly veiled threat that the NCAA might be attacked in some way, shape or form in the court of law. And the people are going to cite to that particular line in the concurring opinion. And I think that's what it is yet again. The NCAA is going to have to say, we're not doing anything anymore. We've handed everything to the schools. Please stop yelling at us. Please stop suing us. We are not doing anything. So, yeah, I, I certainly think that has something to do with it. Quick story, quick uh, quick aside, and then we'll, we'll get into the fun stuff. I did not tell the story in the podcast, but it's too funny not to tell. And I, I know he listens to the podcast. So do you guys know uh, my friend, uh, the IP professor, Tony Iliopastas? Yes. I'm seeing some head nods. Yeah, um, sure do. Your uh, colleague. My, my buddy, uh, he's the uh, IP and entertainment law professor at New York Law School, but he's also a fellow uh, social media Social media law professor, we're in a small group over here. We were on a, a sports law symposium, a panel for Ole Miss, for Mississippi Law School. It was a panel about college sports, NIL. And on the panel, I'm not going to say the name of this person is, but we had an NCA lawyer on the panel with us. So the question was given to me, what do you think about the future of the NCA in light of the Austin decision? So I explained it eloquently in the way that I do, you know, we'll, we'll see what comes of it. But the NCA is basically being told they have to change their business model. And, you know, maybe that's for better or for worse, whatever. Um, I'm explaining it in a way, because I know I have an NCA guy at the table with me. I'm not a complete savage, right? I'm not going to go after this guy, but I'm explaining the decision. That was my role in this particular question. So Tony, 
my my dear friend Tony. He's like, I'd like to say something. So I give him the moderator says, go ahead, Tony. And he goes, yeah, the NCAA is basically a cartel and they've been stealing money from amateur athletes for years. And uh, it's kind of disgusting. Someone's got to step in and stand up to the NCAA. They're a cartel. They're clearly a cartel. And this is the biggest sham in all sports. They're a cartel. <laughs> Everyone's just looking at each other like, wow, Tony just dropped a haymaker on Mr. NCA. And they had a, probably the most contentious fight you'll ever see on a, uh, on a law school panel. But it was great. You never know what you're going to get when you, when you sign up for these law school panels. So you had Tony going blow for blow with one of the NCA's attorneys. And, you know, credit to my friend Tony. I'm going to say he won that round. Maybe the NCA will come back for round two and they'll, they'll do like the rubber match. But I'm going to give that, that W to my, my buddy Tony. He's standing up to the man, Mr. Mr. Slash Professor Ilya Costas. What do you guys think? Do you think Tony? You think Tony is in the right for going after NCAA? I, I can see it both ways. He, he laid it into them. I'm sure the lawsuit ate it, it up. Yeah, exactly. It definitely made it more entertaining. I'm sure. And also credit to uh, Ole Miss Law School. I saw the video that they made. We oh, shared yeah. it on our conduct detrimental Instagram. But that was very slick. They did a nice job with that. Shout out to Brandy Granderson, uh, the president over at Ole Miss. I know she listens to the, the podcast as well. I love speaking at these symposiums and I love the marketing that people do behind it. That was, that was the first like, hype video I ever saw for the Sports Law Symposium panel. Excellent. Okay, moving on to our, well, my, my favorite segment on the podcast. Uh, let's do some quick legal life advice. This, this episode's very long, but we figure we, we know our last episode was two hours. People seem to eat it up. So let's, let's, let's try to be a little bit under two hours. Legal life advice. I got a really, uh, and obviously, uh, Taryn, you know, I'm stealing this uh, 100% from uh, my favorite podcast. That's not this one, the Ryan Rosillo podcast on The Ringer Show. He has random people emailing with life advice about boyfriends, girlfriends, jobs, or whatever. I got a, I had an interesting call with a law student earlier this week who, uh, I will not mention his name, but he's at a law school and he wants to try to be an NIL agent while he is in law school. I have heard of other people doing this at other schools. And the question was, how do I get started in doing this? How do I be an agent while I'm in law school? Is that something that's possible? So the short answer is yes. The short answer is yes. Trent it Roberson. Depends. Trent Roberson, who was, well, Trent Roberson is even in college, right? That's, that's a, he was a, a Nicosi Perry's agent who was on the podcast who had the first deal with Isla Murata. But the advice I gave this law student, which, you know, I, I, I want to point out, he was like, how do I do this? Do I study this? Do I go to the coaches first? And I said, honestly, it's the same advice that I give any law student that calls me that wants, you know, networking advice. I said, why don't you just reach out to as many, well, as many agents as possible, number one, say you're looking for an informational, blah, 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 and see if you can get under, under the, um, you know, the guidance and tutelage and name brand of a recognized firm that's doing some of this work, which will give you a little more credibility. But let's say you can't get in with an agency. It's fine. Maybe you can't, maybe no one wants to take a chance on you, whatever, and you have no background. There is no downside to pulling a Trent Roberson and reaching out directly to these athletes. You are permitted to do, to do that at this point in this NIL era. You have social media and get really creative with your pitch, just like we're talking uh, how Ole Miss had that really creative video they did to advertise the sports law symposium at, at Ole Miss. By all means, you get, get creative. You know, you're only as strong as your ability to attract clients. If you can land one, let's say you landed one player at the University of Florida, a defensive lineman, and you got him some type of deal with like a local restaurant. Okay, that, that's one client under your belt. And then you might be able to have him reach out to people uh, on your behalf. And then it would only go from there. But you have to focus on getting one client. Don't, don't think you have to shoot for the moon and get first round talent, second round talent. You know, just get one guy, get in the door. And then, you know, you, you may see what you can make of it. But you got to just kind of hit the ground running and put yourself out there. Taryn, I see your finger is, is being put up. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's actually how Steph Curry ended up with Under Armour. They uh, had reached a deal with one of his teammates. Oh, Kent Bazemore. I know the story yeah. very well. And that's how they got. That's how they got to Steph. The law student I spoke to, I spoke at his law school, and he was very. I, I took notice of it very, like hungrily, and like asking questions during this. Like I said, does anyone have any questions? He had like five questions, and I'm like, okay, I'm looking out for this guy. And then he reached out to me afterwards. I re- remembered his name from the the panel. And I could tell the guy was very passionate, but he had this long, elaborate plan to get into the space. And I'm like, dude, just start reaching out to people. Reach out to, and like, uh, I don't, is that, I don't know if this is a crazy number, 50 cut and paste a day if you want to send it to various athletes. I'm sure you could find 50, you know, uh, 50 athletes on Twitter with open DMs. I, I don't think it's that crazy to try it. You know, I'm, I'm happy, uh, not that I'm volunteering this, but there's other ways to reach athletes. But in this era, like if you found us through social media and whatnot, that's how you can get these athletes. These guys are 18, 19, 20 years old, and they're just looking for deals. So if you can come to them with a ready-made deal from a local establishment, by all means, they're, they're certainly going to listen to that. I've spoke to, you guys know I have my connections at the University of Nebraska. There are athletes at that school that are looking for deals. They're looking for agents to present them with deals, and they're looking to sign on the dotted line. Got to give shout-outs to, to my school, Nebraska. But yeah, that's that's my life advice. Uh, for, if you want to be an NIL agent, look no further than a previous uh, guest on the podcast, Trent Roberson, as Mike points out. He's in college and he already has a, a, a division one quarterback under his helm. So I know if a college kid can do it, certainly if you're a law student, you can do it. I agree. I think networking is definitely just reach out, just, just cold, you know, cold reach out to people on LinkedIn, send them a message when you try to connect with them. Uh, people are more willing to speak to you than you think, but this will kind of bring us into our uh, what to watch for. I think as you can tell by this absolutely loaded episode and what's happening in, in sports right now, there's just so much sports law going on. So uh, we obviously can't fit it all into one episode, but um, some, I have a, I have two things actually. The first one is Vanessa Bryant. Vanessa Bryant has, you know, filed a motion because she's alleging that there's some sort of cover up scheme here with the pictures that the police department, the sheriff's department uh, took of, of Colby and the wreck. And she's saying that they, she, they were publicly distributed, as we see with the bartender and his deposition. Uh, they've conducted a, a number of pre-trial depositions already. And what she is trying to get is this term called adverse inference. Dan Lust has, has spoken about spoliation on evidence uh, when it comes to this, that they've deleted the photos. And that is the term spoliation for, for the destruction of evidence. And you can be sanctioned for that. And there's a whole slew of things that, that can go wrong with that. But what an adverse inference is basically is if the judge grants this motion, it's basically telling the jury that they have to assume that these photos were publicly distributed or wrongfully distributed, which basically saying that because the defendant deleted these photos, it must be assumed that they distributed them to the public. That was the only reason that they that they deleted them. So we'll we'll keep you up to date um, on what happens with that ruling there and what what goes on. But my second one is also uh, is a big big deal. And, and uh, shout out to Dan Wallach here. Uh, New York is making leaps and bounds with sports gambling. The New York State Gaming Commission met on Monday and they finally uh, selected their two winning bids. Uh, so the winners were for the first bid it was BallyBet. BetMGM, DraftKings, uh, which the primary applicant for that was FanDuel. So those four. Uh, and then the second one was Camby's primary applicant, which is Caesar Sportsbook, PointsBet, Resorts World, Rush Street, Interactive, and WinBet. Already giant things happening. You've got uh, BetMGM making a deal with uh, MSG and being the official sportsbook of Madison Square Garden. 
you've got a number of, of different developments happening at, at, as the as this bid came in. Now, what is interesting, and I, I do want to highlight this too, and Dan's been covering this, there is still the New York Court of Appeals case that is pending regarding the unconstitutionality of the legislation that legalized sports gambling when Cuomo proposed it in, in, in the bill. So that's still kind of in the background. We have to keep an eye out for that. Uh, it's actually been rescheduled for re-argument. Uh, so that won't happen until next year. And we have a couple of procedural issues where one of the judges, one of the justices in the Court of Appeals is aging out. He's turning 70. So they have to replace him. And then there was also an issue with one of the justices that recused himself on the argument. So they have to replace that. So they have a full bench, but uh, we'll keep you up to date. And Dan Wallach, just keep an eye out for his Twitter because he'll be all over this too, but big, big moves for the New York sports gambling market. And national gaming, not amongst the, that group, Mike, that'll definitely be something to watch for. Dan, you mentioned I, I came to New York. This is the end of a, a pretty crazy day for me yesterday afternoon after my morning class, I flew to uh, New York, uh, Coach K's final season as the head coach of Duke men's basketball kicked off last night uh, in the Mecca of basketball, Madison Square Garden uh, against Kentucky in the Champions Classic. And I knew that I had to be there. So I, I joined my brother-in-law to be Carter and um, we went to the game and it was an awesome experience. I love Duke, obviously, um, and, and I always have as the son of of immigrants who came here um you know, sports is something that i found has a, a tremendous power to unite people and it's the reason why i'm so passionate about it and duke basketball is um really the first sport that i i really got into and the team that i loved the most when i was growing up so the opportunity to be there and to uh you know pay my respects to to who I consider to be the greatest men's basketball coach of all time in, uh, in coach Mike Shevsky last night and, and to get to see a win was, uh, was really special. So, uh, and then I got to record the podcast today, which, uh, you know, just a great day. So, um, I'm, I'm really excited about the uh, basketball season starting back up, really excited about crowds being there. That's really what makes college basketball and college football, in my opinion, and uh, I'm glad that we're getting closer to a sense of normalcy, knock on wood. Taryn, well said. Um, and uh, I uh, likewise am, am very passionate about sports for the same reason. It is our universal language. While our country is divided on a number of fronts, uh, we, can always, uh, we can always cheer for, for our team. So, uh, you know, I think let's not take for granted that a year ago we, uh, we still didn't have any sports. I think we're right around that same time. Or maybe they were just coming back uh, November of 2020. Um, so certainly happy to have it back. Um, my uh, what to watch for. One of the wildest stories that you will ever possibly see. January of 1994. Um, uh, you know, not that I was paying attention to sports back then, but we had the Nancy Kerrigan, Tanya Harding, like baton slap of the back of the knee and Kerrigan's on the ground screaming why and Tanya Harding. You know, uh, people know the story. There's now the I, Tanya movie. But that GIF is used very, very often with Nancy Kerrigan. So, I don't know, it's a pretty weird case, right? Somebody attacks somebody else in order to get an advantage in a competition. So it's been about 20 years, just, just under 20 years. And what do we have? We have essentially the same thing happening once again, but like much, much better. Like this, if this Tanya, I, Tanya movie did well, like 
this will do much better. Okay, so here's the story out of the PSG women's soccer team. So I'm going to read the headline from BR Football. PSG confirms that women's midfielder Amanita Diallo was taken into police custody today following an attack on the club's players. Odd headline, to say the least, right? Someone is being arrested following an attack on the club's players. Then it goes on. She allegedly hired masked men to injure France and PSG teammate Kiera Hamrai. I'm totally going to mess the pronunciation and remove Kiera from competition for playing time per something called Lakeith, a website. When I looked them up, they had 5 million followers verified. So I'm like, okay, wild story. I guess this company's legit. Let me dig a little further. So per Lakeith, okay. So Hamurai, who is the person that was assaulted, who, okay, just follow me for a second. Hamurai accepted a ride home from Diallo after a PSG team dinner. As they were driving home together in Diallo's car, the car was stopped by two men, two masked men. Both women were pulled out of the car and Diallo, the person whose car it was, she was conveniently held back while Hamurai was assaulted by the other person. This sounds very suspicious. And guess what happens, right? Again, I'm not, I don't really, I'm not a fan of, not really a big soccer person. I'm certainly, I don't follow PSG women's soccer. I, I, my understanding is that Diallo ends up playing in the game, ends up taking this person's spot in a particular game. And then she's arrested. So Diallo 26 was taken into custody on Wednesday morning, one day after she replaced her teammate, Kiara Hamurai in PSG's midfield for its championships league game against Real Madrid. Was it worth it? Was it worth it for one game of playing time to have this masked man attack? A wild, wild story. I'm hoping for, uh, listen, I never hope, uh, you know, it wish ill will on anybody, but these allegations are so crazy not to be true. This story is fun. Obviously, these are all allegations at this, this point, but I would highly recommend uh, just checking it out. It's on it's on our social media now. But it's a story that's just so wild um, that I, I don't know. It's, it's being reported by the New York Times having sourcing on this article. So seem to be some verifiable sources that want to uh, put their names behind it. But you certainly don't see every day a teammate getting arrested for allegedly orchestrating an, an attack on a fellow teammate. So just just for the headline itself, it is, it is worth uh, checking out. And obviously, we'll keep tabs on it. Um, as a final note, uh, my what to watch for, uh, we'll say my what to watch for is sponsored by uh, Themis Bar Review. I am appearing on a sports and entertainment panel for Themis Bar Review on, on Friday, this Friday, November 12th at 1 p.m. ET. We are going to be talking all things at the intersection of sports and law. I'm sure all of our favorite topics will come up from the Cleveland Guardians roller derby saga to the St. Louis Rams. But, you know, I, I think... Uh, that's a little bit of, uh, of our story at this point. We cover all the fun stories. You know, sometimes we cover the sad ones, the happy ones, the funny ones, but we cover all things sports law. And I, I know Themis is super appreciative of it. So if you want to check that out and see a little bit what, what I do in my actual law practice, I'm, I'm certainly going to get into that as well. That's it for me, boys. Uh, guys, anything else to add? Uh, we hit, I think we hit a record. We hit a record length podcast, you know, for our last episode. We had a record topic podcast for this one. We're just breaking records left and right. That was a lot of topic. And if you're listening and you made it to the end, we really appreciate it. Uh, appreciate all of our listeners and uh, grateful for the opportunity to be able to talk about these topics. Certainly. And I think, you know, we, we're very transparent on, on what we do here. Our, our last month, we're, obviously, we're now in November, the month of October, we have, I'm not going to say the exact numbers, but let's just say this. <laughs> we basically doubled the amount of uh, downloads we've ever had in any month prior to that. Uh, so it's not going unnoticed. We want to thank you, all of our listeners, for 
don't know, joining us on this journey at the intersection of sports and law, the, the intersection uh, is certainly blowing up. We're happy to bring more attention to it. We've gotten so many more reviews. Uh, we ask for them periodically. No one ever gives them, but we've been getting a lot recently. So that has not gotten noticed. If you want to be so kind as to leave us a review, a five-star review and a comment about how much you love us, that certainly um, does not go underappreciated and helps more people uh, turn on to the podcast. Uh, so uh, again, just as a programming note, we mentioned at the top, there is some new St. Louis Rams news. We'll cover that um, on our on our next podcast. Yeah, but we'll, we'll leave that to Dan. Dan will be very annoyed if we talk St. Louis Rams without him. Dan, this is this is Dan's baby. He, he does not want to want to uh, not not go an episode without talking St. Louis Rams. Um, and obviously, uh, this is we're basically sponsored by the St. Louis Rams at this point. I think it's fair. I don't know, you guys, anything else to add before we, we, we close it up? Yeah, those reviews definitely help us. And if you uh, if you leave a review, uh, if you leave a five star review, we will read what you have written on the podcast as long as it's appropriate. But if you want to say something funny or ask a question, uh, ask for life advice, that would be a great place to do it. And uh, the Dan's will will definitely weigh in on your question if you do it through a five star review. Uh, yeah, so uh, we will put this in the books. Dan Wallach, the creator of Conduct Detrimental, is at Wallach Legal. Myself, Dan Lust, at Sports or Lust. Taryn is at TK Sharma Law. Mike is at Mike underscore son of underscore law. And lastly, Jason is at Jason underscore Morin on Twitter. For all of us at Conduct Detrimental, we apologize for these marathon episodes or, or you know, you're welcome. Uh, feedback's been pretty good. Uh, but either way, we'll be back uh, early and often with more sports law. This is the week that keeps on giving more sports all left and right. Uh, so, yeah, um, I imagine uh, our next episode is going to be another another big one as well. But we appreciate joining us on this journey. Uh, for all of us here, we will see you next week on another episode of Conic Detrimental.